Uh, kids, have you ever seen, uh, maybe you've had, probably some of you, maybe all of you have had a, a, a little animal like a gerbil or a hamster, um, uh, or maybe there's some other mice even, ew, but uh, <laughs> there are pet mice, I guess. Uh, have you ever had or seen, uh, if you haven't had one, a little house, or a, a little a little cage, rather, a, a, you know, a tank that has one of those little creatures in it? Or maybe it was even something smaller. Maybe it was something like a bug, like a, a grasshopper, or, well, or something else. We'll just leave it at that, and I won't bring that metal image up that just came into my head. But anyway... Um, and usually, and usually in, in those little aquarium things or tank things, you'll see a little place, a little little box. Maybe it's made out of cardboard or maybe plastic or something. But where the whatever it is that's in there, the little pet can go and hang out and fall asleep. And it's a little cozy little box. And maybe it's just like this big. You know, if it's well, it'd be like that big if it's for a bug, and might be about that big if it's for a uh, for a rodent of some sort. Those are very little houses, right? They're just small little things, like I say, made out of cardboard. Not much to them. Cheap. Not worth much. Uh, if you want to sell it, not many people would say, oh, I want to buy that house. Your, your mouse's house. Now, your dog, if you have a dog, or if you don't, you can imagine your neighbor or have seen your neighbor's dog or somebody else's dog. The dog also has a house. That, but that's going to be a bigger thing. That's going to be a little sturdier and cost a little more. It'll be made out of wood, probably, or paneling or whatever, and depend on, depending on who built it. Uh, Mr. Bill helped us build our last doghouse, and we, uh, it was a really nice doghouse. It actually has a, has a corrugated metal roof on it, um, and sturdy and all that kind of stuff. I've actually stood on top of the thing before to reach up and cut some branches on the tree above. And that's a pretty impressive house compared to the compared to the mouse's house. Well, then there's the house that you live in. Now that's much grander still, right? That has many rooms in it, unlike your dog's house or a dog house, um, and that maybe have has more than one story to it. And if it doesn't have more than one story, but it's got a lot of lot of uh, walls and lots of uh, decorations and uh, furniture and all sorts of things in it that your dog doesn't have and certainly that your gerbil doesn't have. Well, then there are houses that kings live in or really, 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 really rich people. They're called oftentimes palaces or mansions. And I dare say that most of the palaces and mansions that the kings of Europe lived in are much grander than the house you and I live in, even though our house is very nice. All of, all of us, I think, live in nice houses. Uh, but that's grander still. That, has, that ha- might have, a, a, like, the Palace of Versailles. Don't worry if you don't know where that is, but it's in France. And that has a palace uh, that is... I don't know how many rooms are in that, but it's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of rooms in that palace. Gold everywhere. Grand place. So you get my point that there are different houses, and uh, they're really humble houses, and there are 
these enormous, enormously expensive and grand big houses. Well, there's a progression going up to the big house from the little house. I bring this up because in this passage that we're looking at today, there is, and this isn't houses we're looking at here, but there is a progression uh, and really, starting back in the in the first few verses of this chapter of the chapter that I read to begin with, it really begins in the previous verses, and it builds, and it's a progression from lowly people, uh, creatures, to more exalted creatures, to the most exalted, far above any creature, the Creator Himself, who is. Jesus in this passage, because he is the God, a man, right? He's the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. And so that's what's going on in this passage, is Jesus is being compared to lesser um, spokesmen, if, if, if we might call them that, lesser mouthpieces of God. He is the great and all uh splendid and superior mouthpiece of God, the Lord Jesus. And that's the point that this passage is making for us. As I already indicated, the first few verses of this chapter um, uh, contrast the uh, indescribable glory and excellence of the final and greatest mouthpiece of God or revealer of God's mind, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is called the Word of God, uh, the writer contrasts Jesus with far inferior uh, those who were far inferior in terms of their excellence, who were earlier mouthpieces of God in the Old Testament. He's speaking, of course, uh, in the first few verses here about the Old Testament prophets and seers, which is essentially equivalent to a prophet. And he said uh, they they spoke on behalf of God, but they were lowly spokesmen. We'll put them. We'll describe them that way. Well, there's another category of mouthpieces of God or spokesmen of God uh, that's higher than the prophets of old, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, uh, who are compared to Jesus, and that is the angelic host. Uh, angels were mouthpieces of God oftentimes and came and delivered messages on behalf of God to the people of God in the Old Testament uh, age, and even the New Testament age, I would say, as well. And in the verses we're looking at today, uh, 4 through the end of the chapter, the writer goes into detail about how God's angelic spokesmen are, in fact, much, much um, humbler than the Son of God, the God of, um, who is the Word of God Himself, the, uh, the incarnate Son exalted and enthroned at God's right hand. And that's what is happening in these verses 4 through the end of the chapter. I don't do this very often, but today we have a one-point sermon. In fact, my mentor told me there is no such thing as a one-point sermon. I respectfully disagree with him once in a great while, and now I respectfully disagree. Uh, This has a one-pointer. This is a one-pointer. I suppose I could have fought hard to make it two, but um, it really is about one thing. And I've already indicated to the children. And that is, it makes the point, uh, through comparison, that Jesus is far superior to the angels. And that is the point of this passage. He is above the angels. He, and 
what the writer does here is offers um, numerous proofs that, in fact, that is the case. That Jesus is unlike the angels uh, in so many ways. And we're going to look at those ways in the coming uh, minutes that we have ahead. I just, um, first, uh, before we go into the proofs that Jesus is far superior to the angels, I want to, I want to say something about the nature of the evidence that the writer, uh, and I'm just going to call him the writer, by the way. I'm not always going to say the writer of the Hebrews. Uh, but uh, the nature of the evidence that the writer offers, or is about to offer, I should say, in, coming, in the coming verses, uh, uh, 4 through 14. Uh, first of all, he does not use, the author does not, clever little arguments that he has concocted in his own head to make his case. Little uh, syllogisms or whatever. Um, little rational arguments that he's like, oh, I, here's, here's one of the reasons why I think Jesus is superior to the angels. He doesn't use uh, earthly wisdom, human wisdom, his own wisdom, to make his point uh, uh, with some argument that he's come up with. No, he doesn't do that uh, to prove that Jesus is far superior to the angels. He also, by the way, does not, and this was long after the resurrection when this was written, uh, decades after the resurrection of Christ, he doesn't recount or reference any of the miracles, many, many miracles, uh, that thousands of eyewitnesses witnessed Jesus performing, uh, many of whom were still alive, undoubtedly, when the writer was writing this particular sermon. This is a sermon, not a letter, by the way. And another thing he does not do is he doesn't mention anywhere, at least not here directly, he doesn't mention that Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Now, it's all it's implied here, but he doesn't explicitly reference the resurrection or the exaltation of Christ per se to make his case. No, what he does is he goes to the source which his readers, remember they were Jewish Christians, that's why it's called Hebrews, he goes to the source that his readers were most apt to be convinced of, and that was the Old Testament scriptures that God that they knew were God's voice and believed were God's voice and God speaking, and it, it, it was and is. And so what he does is here he machine guns scripture at him from the Old Testament to prove Jesus is far exalted above not just men, not just great men of old, but in fact the angelic host themselves. So, we're going to spend the remaining remainder of our time here just looking at uh, how Jesus is superior to these angelic beings. First of all, he makes the point in verse 5 that Jesus' uh, relationship to God to the Godhead, particularly to the Father, but uh, we'll just say God in general here, that Jesus' relationship uh, to God is uniquely close. It's uniquely close. Look at verse 5. Let me back in verse 4. Having become, and he's in in mid-sentence here, uh, back in verse 3, he said, When he had made purification of sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Uh, and then he goes on to explain why he has this more excellent name, which is the name is, uh, was, is synonym for uh, status. Um, 
is much more excellent status than they do. And uh, he goes into verse 5 and says, For, he starts to begin to offer evidence why he has a more excellent name, For, to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, and then he says, quotes from Psalm 2 here, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. And again, now he quotes from 2 Samuel verse 7, verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. In other words, to which of the angels did he ever do that? And the answer, of course, is Zippo. None. The words, you are my son, today I have begot, become a father to you. That's from the uh, Christian Holman Christian Standard Version, by the way, that I just quoted there. Those words were never uttered by God to any angel. And will never be uttered by God to any angel. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. The angels were and are collectively called sons of God in, um, in Job, three times in Job, actually. Job uh, 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. They are referred to as sons of God. But none of the angels are ever called the son of God in these terms, and, and actually specifically called my, uh, you know, God saying to them, you are my son. That never occurred to any of the angels, even though they were uh, called sons of God. Now, these words, uh, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, and also the other one from 2 Samuel, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. These words singled out um, the person being addressed by the father and giving him status that differs and is far superior to all others. Jesus, in other words, is the Son, the unique Son. By the way, the word uh, only begotten that many of us are used to from the King James um, is probably better translated uh, the unique Son. Some of the newer translations actually use that as a translation rather than only begotten Son of God in the New Testament. And, uh, and that, that actually is uh, uh, kind of gets to the point of... Uh, what the underlying term is. But so Jesus is referred to as the unique son. So his relationship with the the Godhead is uniquely close. He is God's son. Okay? That's one of the things, that the one of the evidences the writer of the Hebrews offers. Secondly, he speaks of the fact that Jesus' status in the cosmos, in the universe, is uniquely exalted. He's not only uniquely close to God, his status in the cosmos is uniquely exalted. And uh, this also comes to us from verse 5. Verse verse 5, the the Old Testament quote is from Psalm 2, uh, verse 7. And those words in their original context in Psalm 2, you'll recall, were spoken by God about David and his royal descendants, the Davidic kings. Let's go back and just look at it real briefly so you know I'm not lying to you. Uh, Well, you probably suspected I wasn't lying to you. At any rate, um, 
I will surely tell, this is verse uh, 7 of Psalm 2, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Uh, and by the way, this is, this is ultimately uh, the uh, divine son speaking here. Um, and it's looking forward to the time when Jesus uh, would be um, come to earth as the God-man. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, he said to me, thou art my son. So the Lord, the, the uh, Yahweh is speaking, or the Father, you could say, is speaking to the Son. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That was when Christ was installed as king upon Mount Zion, uh, following his actually resurrection and ascension, uh, following uh, his death. And this is looking forward to those that time period. So, but, but in its original context, David wrote this. Okay, and so in the original context, David is saying to the Lord, or the, the Lord is saying through David's pen to David and to his descendants, he's using these words that are quoted by the writer. And at the heart, you see, of the Davidic administration of the covenant of grace was the, co- the concept of sonship that was at the heart of the Davidic covenant. The human party to the covenant, uh, uh, which was David or one of David's biological descendants, the human party to the covenant was considered God's son in a unique way, unlike um, the children of Israel, who were in some sense children of God, sons of God, but not in the same way that David was or David's descendants were. And so the human party was considered God's son, and God was considered in a unique way the Davidic king's father. And so, the div- and, and by the way, the divine words here um, that God, the Father, or Yahweh, is speaking to the Davidic king, who, he, he just, who is his son, you are my son, those words by Yahweh were almost certainly, we can't prove this, but it makes, it makes eminent sense that, uh, that this is what was the case. <coughs> Excuse me. That, uh, that this was quoted, these words, you are my son, was quoted by David and probably by his Davidic descendants, subsequent kings of Judah, Israel and Judah, that it was quoted by them on the day when they were anointed and exalted to the throne of Israel, the coronation day. And this was probably... Uh, these words were probably uttered by uh, David, or perhaps by uh, the high priest, um, but almost certainly, again, we can't totally prove it, but, we're, but it just makes complete sense that this is what happened, um, that, that it was, these words were uttered uh, on the day of the coronation of the Davidic king, be it David or one of his successors. And if it was, da- if it was when it, in the case of David's successors, uh, it, quoting it would mark a renewal of the special covenant bond that subsisted between David's house and Yahweh. Obviously, the words, you are my son, uh, found their ultimate fulfillment uh, in the exaltation and enthronement and coronation, if you will, of David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus 
Christ that all the other Davidic kings typified uh, when he uh, ascended into heaven following his resurrection. That was the, that's the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. It's not David or Jehoshaphat or whomever. It's, it's Christ, ultimately, is the full, uh, ultimate fulfillment of it. So, so, by quoting these words, Thou art my son, the writer of the Hebrews, who quotes right there in verse 5, by quoting those words, the writer of the Hebrews is in effect asking his readers, what angel ever attained such an exalted and privileged status with God to be called his son or my son by God himself? And of course the answer is, well, none. No angel ever had that privilege. And he's like, right, exactly. Jesus, however, did have that said about him by uh, Yahweh, by the Father. So Jesus is exalted uh, to a, uh, uh, Jesus' status in the cosmos is uniquely exalted. Another, a further, yet third evidence uh, that uh, supports the the fact that Jesus was uh, far better, far superior to the angels, is that Jesus is actually worshipped by the angels. The angels worship Jesus. Verse 6 makes this point. And it comes, it's a quotation from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses, verse 42. And he says, before he gets to the quote, he says in verse 6, And when he, uh, the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and by the way here, world is, uh, even though it doesn't use the words the world to come, it almost certainly, uh, commentators, good ones, believe that's what it's a reference to. It's a reference to the, the, uh, the world to come or, the, or, or heaven when he, after his ascension into heaven. Uh, that that's the heavenly world. Or the world to come. Actually, heavenly world is probably a better uh, a better uh, uh, adjective to use there. And that that's a reference to it. And he says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he, God says, and then he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. You recall from uh, Revelation 5, that heavenly scene that's described there. I won't bother turning there for the uh, sake of time, but uh, m- most of you have read that before. It's just before the Lamb opens the book uh, and its seven seals. And it's a heavenly scene where um, uh, just prior to that. And what's going on there? The angels are worshiping the Lamb. You see, fulfilled, fulfillment of these words that uh, actually come from Psalm 97, verse 7, but they are fulfilled uh, in, uh, uh, in, in uh, ultimately uh, after the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father when the angels worship him. Um, the Bible, in the Bible, of course, and I don't, most everyone here uh, knows this, I'm sure, but the Bible, worship is only ever appropriately rendered unto someone who is greater than the one doing the worshiping. So the fact that the angels, these exalted uh, spiritual creatures, the fact that the angels worship Jesus in heaven now 
as evidenced by Romans 5 and fulfillment of uh, uh, Psalm 97, verse 7. The fact that that's happening serves as powerful evidence, yet further evidence, that Jesus is greater far, by far, than the angels who worship him. The angels are merely servants or ministers of God, which the writer makes that point, by the way, in both verse 7 and verse 14. In verse 7, he says, um, And of the angels he, the Father, says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers, reference to the angels, a flame of fire. And then he calls the ministering spirits over in verse 14 as well. They're, they're, they're ministers, they're servants. And who are they servants of? God. And in fact, of God the Son, who is uh, the focus of this passage, the, the God-man uh, post-resurrection and ascension. So Jesus is worshipped by the angels, yet further evidence that he's far superior to them. And even more, he goes on, he points out that Jesus not merely is not merely God's Son, or the Son of God, but he is actually, and this isn't really saying something different, but in some ways it is, he is actually Yahweh himself. He's distinguished from Yahweh earlier on when he says, you're my son, but he's actually Yahweh himself. He's actually the, the, uh, the God of Scripture himself. Uh, angels, you see, are mere creatures. Um, they are exalted creatures. They are, in some ways, far more exalted than we are as human beings, although we are made in God's image, they are not. So we are blessed in ways that they are not, but they are... They are, uh, they are sinless, so on and so forth. They uh, surround the throne of God uh, and do his bidding and whatnot. So they are in many ways uh, exalted above us, but they're mere creatures. They're creations. Jesus, on the other hand, is not. He has no beginning. He is the divine one. Uh, this word divine is a term that uh, whose meaning has been... Uh, uh, greatly cheapened by popular uh, culture in uh, recent uh, decades. I think of uh, Bette Midler, who was called uh, the Divine Miss M. <laughs> Jeez. Divine, that's kind of wild. Anyway, or uh, people saying, you know, well, those, those, the, those children were just divine. Uh, some old ladies tend to talk that way sometimes, <clears throat> at least when I was growing up. The, you couldn't be more inappropriate. I, find a more inappropriate use of either of those, uh, in either of those cases than the word divine. It certainly doesn't apply to Bet, uh, nor does it, divine, it apply to any children. <laughs> uh, sorry, children, don't mean to burst your bubble, but <laughs> it doesn't apply. Or to anybody. Uh, save Jesus, you see. Jesus, according to the writer, is divine in the sense that he is the only True and living God, he is Yahweh himself. And verse 8 makes that point eloquently, quoting from Psalm 45, verse 6 and following. He says in verse 8, But of the Son, in contrast to the angels that he just spoken of in the previous verse, but of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Some manuscripts read of your kingdom. 
but thy throne, O God, referencing the Son. And he's quoting here, the writer of Hebrews is, from Psalm 45, verse 6. And the 45th Psalm, what's going on there? Well, it's celebrating, it's a Davidic Psalm, and it's celebrating the wedding of one of Judah's kings. Actually, I don't think it is actually, uh, uh, I'm not sure it's written by David, uh, come to think of it. I don't think it actually ascribes uh, Davidic authorship to the Psalm, if I'm remembering correctly. But at any rate, it uh, celebrates a wedding of one of Judah's kings. And the psalmist who wrote it, David or, or somebody else, addresses the bridegroom in the psalm first, and then afterwards addresses the bride in this uh, royal wedding. And the, uh, the, the, the psalmist there speaks to the bridegroom, who was the Davidic king, in verse 8, when he says... Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, so in the original context, somebody actually applied that word, God, to the Davidic king. Now, that's because that's, that's kind of strange, because David, great man, but he wasn't, he wasn't God. Um, well, this is not the only place, Psalm 45 is not the only place in the Old Testament where David or one of his royal descendants is addressed in this, with this language. This is hyperbolic language when it applies to the mere human kings of Judah and Israel. It is hyperbolic language. It is not meant to say, oh yes, you're another god uh, in addition to Yahweh. Uh, that, would be the, that would be supremely heretical for a Jewish psalmist to, to write, uh, and let alone for it to be included in the Holy Scriptures. That's not what he was saying. But he was saying, there is a, in, a, in, a, in a much reduced way, there's a godlike, um, uh, kind of uh, almost deified uh, situation that we find ourselves in with the, the Jewish king being, um, uh, being wedded to his beloved bride with all the splendor and the glory of the occasion. To the Old Testament poets, you see, and prophets, uh, David and his descendants were vice-regents of God, vassal kings under the great suzerain king, Yahweh himself. They ruled for him on his behalf in his name. And they did so in ways that the pagan kings did not do even though their authority was also delegated to them by God, but they were not Davidic. Uh, they were not his son. Um, uh, and they did not rule in the same way that the uh, kings of Israel and Judah did on his behalf. And this is why the psalmist is willing to, to use the word God to apply it to the, the original setting where, uh, where the Davidic king was in view and his bride, with his bride. But what could only be said of David and his royal descendants in a very indirect and shadowy way, using that language, God, could be and needed to be said and was said of David's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus, in a full and absolute sense. Jesus was and is the one and only God of the universe. He was and is Yahweh, the uh, God of the Old Testament, and he is not one-third of God. He is 100% God. 
as is the Father, as is the Spirit. Uh, one of the things that we learned about at this conference, and by the way, this conference I went to in South Carolina at Greenville Seminary, uh, excellent conference, and it was on the uh, uh, splendor of God's attributes and how they affect the way we live or should affect the way we live. And one of the, uh, uh, one of the things that was regularly brought up was that God is simple, That is to say, God is not composed of parts. He's not composed of anything. There is no composition in God. He is not composed of his attributes. He's certainly not composed of three sections designated as persons by us. He is is one in an absolute sense. And by the way, if he is not, and I'm not going to get into this here, but all sorts of terrible heresies arise. Even people don't even realize it until they, you know. Anyway, God is simple. He is one. And he is one divine being, not carved up into three uh, pies and pushed together. So, uh, Jesus is 100%. Yahweh. He is the God of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elisha, and so on. Uh, and the writer of the Hebrews is making that point. This is, he is Yahweh. And uh, so Jesus was the angel's creator and the angel's sustainer. Um, the greatest angel of all, be that Gabriel or Michael or whoever's the greatest angel in the angelic host, is nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus upholds angel uh, Gabriel and Michael. They exist because he wills it. That's the only reason they exist. That's the only reason you exist and I exist. Because God upholds everything and he is God. Another evidence that the writer of the Hebrews offers for the supremacy of Jesus, uh, or superiority of Jesus over the angels, is that Jesus possesses and rules over an everlasting kingdom. Verse 8 speaks of this again. But of thy... Uh, But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, we're speaking obviously of a king, Thy throne, O God, reference to Jesus, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his, or uh, some translations read, your kingdom. This is the kingdom, folks, that Jesus now rules over that was promised to David's son in the Davidic covenant. If you turn with me over to 2 Samuel, we'll look at that briefly, starting in verses uh, 12 and reading through verse the first part of verse 14. Uh, this is the giving of the Davidic covenant. One, one, uh, one of the places, the other places it's found is in 1 Chronicles 17. We looked at that some months back when we started our journey through 2 uh, Chronicles. But in... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12, uh, we read this, uh, David speaking, uh, when your days, no, excuse me, not not, not David speaking, Uh, God is speaking at this point. The word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, verse 4. So this is God speaking. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God is speaking to David, I will raise up your descendant, your seed, after you. Remember, that can be singular or plural, and it's actually both. I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, 
verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, note, forever. And I will be a father to him, there it is, and he will be a son to me. Jesus' kingdom given to him by the Father as a result of his obedience unto death in fulfillment of the covenant of grace, the eternal covenant made between the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, and fulfilled in time and space. That, um, that kingdom, I lost my train of thought here all of a sudden. Anyway, was, uh, was now, yeah, there it is, was, it is an everlasting kingdom. It has no end. And that's the kingdom that's referenced here. Uh, it's a kingdom that David's greatest son, the exalted God-man, is now in full possession of, uh, according to the writer of the Hebrews. He is now ruling. Dispensationalists, I believe I get this correct, based on my discussions with my, my good friend uh, Bob, but dispensationalists believe that God is ruling God undifferentiated is ruling as the triune God, but Jesus will only rule in this way when the millennial kingdom comes, which doesn't happen until after the tribulation uh, and Armageddon and so on. We, with respect, differ uh, and disagree with our brothers, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters. Jesus is ruling now. This passage makes that point. The right of the Hebrews quote of uh, those Old Testament passages in his letter, or his sermon rather. It's a kingdom uh, that we are told in verses 8 and 9 is a kingdom that is possessed, uh, or possesses rather, um, is characterized rather by perfect righteousness. That's why it's referred to, that's why it speaks of his righteous scepter, is the scepter of his kingdom. And then verse 9, thou, shalt, thou hast loved righteousness, meaning the king, and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. But righteousness, perfect righteousness, characterizes his kingdom. Uh, and the righteousness and justice which are the foundation of God's throne from Psalm 89, verse 14, we learn that, are equally the foundation of God the Son's throne, because, of course, he's God. But the, but the messianic son, uh, as the, um, uh, who's now enthroned uh, as, over the messianic kingdom, that God, the triune God is now ruling through. And, of course, that makes sense, that the righteousness of God's throne would be the righteousness of Jesus' throne, because Jesus is God. This is not true of any of the angels. None of them have a kingdom, let alone an everlasting one. <coughs> the writer of the Hebrews goes on in verse 10, makes a yet further point. He says, oh, and by the way, the angels, uh, or Jesus made the heavens. He created everything, the heavens and the earth. The angels didn't make anything. Verse 10. And thou, and, and then he quotes, uh, again, from Psalm uh, 102, verse 25, uh, and thou... Uh, and thou, Lord, and if you look back at the, the actual psalm, the Lord there comes from the previous verse, and it says God. So this is actually another proof text for Jesus' deity. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth. You did that, 
Jesus is what the the, uh, psalmist is, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is saying. And the heavens are the works of thy hands. They're the works of God the Son's hands. Paul makes this point over in Colossians, doesn't he? Colossians chapter 1. It's being made here again by the writer of the Hebrews. He's reiterating the point that he made back in verse 2 of this chapter when he referred to the Son as the one through whom God made the world. This is just a reiteration of that point, only using Psalm 102, verse 25 to do it. The angels, you see, they were merely worshiping spectators when God the Son was fashioning the earth. According to, by the way, according to Job 38. Let's quickly look there. Job 38 it, it alludes to the angels being present as the Lord is fashioning, as Jesus, God the Son, is fashioning the earth. Uh, Job 38, starting in verse 4, reading through verse 7. And verse 7 is the clincher where the point is made. Um, by the way, where the, frame, uh, the phrase, the sons of God, uh, is found. You'll see it here in a minute. Starting in verse 4, though, God speaking. He's uh, rebuking, reproving Job, I should say speaking out of the whirlwind, says, Oh, by the way, that's my little ad lib, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measures, measurements, since you know? Since you know so much, Job. Who set the earth? Um, I lost my place. Uh, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice, when the morning stars sang together, and here it is, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Those sons of God were the angels, because man hadn't yet been created. They were adoring spectators, you see, as the earth is being fashioned. He'd already apparently made them. But they weren't creating squat. Jesus was. Yet further evidence that Jesus was and is far superior to the angels. He's the creator. And then, nextly, uh, next, Jesus, unlike the creation or, or any of the angels, is himself the writer of Hebrews makes this point in verses 11 and 12. He is himself eternal. Not only is his kingdom eternal, but he himself is eternal and, oh, by the way, unchangeable. And those two things go hand in hand. Eternity means God is not defined by or uh, uh, bound by time. Time is not something that uh, uh, God is not extended in time or in space. It doesn't, it doesn't in any way contribute to him or define him, uh, unlike ourselves. But he is its maker. And so he is outside of time. And in order for something to change, you all have heard me say this before, I think, requires time. You're, you're referencing two points in time. Here's one point, and something is different about whatever is changing at this subsequent point. You've got to have time to have change. God's not bound by time. Jesus is not, who is God, is not bound 
by time. He's eternal, and therefore he's unchangeable. And verses 11 and 12 make this point. The writer of the Hebrews uses the quote from Psalm 102, verse 25, that we, uh, that we were just reading a moment ago, to show the fleeting and transitory nature of everything that was and has been created, which would include, by implication, oh, the angels. Verses 10 and 11, I'll read that now. So verse 10, uh, he starts out, says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. And then he goes on, They, meaning uh, the works uh, and the, the foundations of the earth and the works of thy hands, they will perish, but thou remainest. And they all will become old as a garment. But you see, he says, they will perish. They, are, they will not last eternally. Um, he says, he compares the heavens and the earth uh, to a shirt or a coat that is becoming old and worn out, a garment that becomes worn out as time passes and will eventually be gathered up and disposed of, thrown away. He says, that's what the heavens and the earth are like. That's what the stars are like, by the way, that you might have seen last night if you were out few weeks back or days back. The creation is ephemeral. It's transitory. It's fleeting. It's temporary. Including the angels. Because they're creatures. Including us. But the same psalm also speaks of God's, God's permanence and His unchanging character. And the psalmist speaks of it by contrasting the creation's fate, which is it's going to pass away, the the physical heavens and the earth are going to pass away, with God, who cannot pass away. Verse 12, And as a mantle thou wilt roll them, the heavens and the earth and the stars and so on, up, as a garment they will also be changed, notice, but you, unlike your creation that you have made, you are the same. And thy years will not come to an end. You will not cease to be like the heavens and the earth, which will be burnt up one day. And of course he's speaking about Jesus. You are eternal. You are unchangeable. You are the divine Son. Unlike the angels... You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, is what the psalmist, or the, uh, the uh, writer of the Hebrews is saying. Yet one more piece of evidence to be brought, brought to bear by him. And then finally, the final uh, proof, if you will, that Jesus is far superior, indescribably superior to the angels, is that unlike the angels, he is now seated, seated at the place of highest honor in the universe. Verse 13. But to which of the angels has he, Yahweh, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Of course, he said that to none of the angels. That's a quote from Psalm 110, that famous, very well-known messianic uh, psalm. And of course, being at one's right hand in the ancient world meant being at the place of greatest honor and privilege and uh, status. Uh, again, we don't want to think of uh, two men 
an old guy and a younger guy sitting together next to each other in, in chairs. Don't think that way. It's crass. <laughs> it's unbecoming of God. It's not, it's not an accurate picture at all. No, it just means Jesus is the, the God-man, the embodied God-man and exalted God-man is now at, at, at the place of supreme exaltation and supreme honor because of what he's done. At the Father's behest, saving a people, you and me, unto himself. And thus, he gets the place of greatest honor in the universe and beyond, even though there's nothing beyond other than God himself. This was a point, Jesus exalted, uh, uh, Jesus' exaltation uh, being a place of highest honor was implicitly made back in verse 5 when he was quoting from Psalm 2, but it's a point that he now is explicitly making by applying the words of Psalm 110 to Jesus himself. So, in conclusion, this is your Savior that has just been described here. This is your King who has just been described here. Your Master who has just been described here. The angels in heaven worship him and serve him. He's an everlasting king. He is God himself. He is Yahweh himself. And he is the one that holds you in the palm of his hand. And because he is such an exalted and powerful and blessed and honored Savior and King. There are implications to that, which I'll close with just three. First of all, He is able and will conquer all His and your enemies. That's right. Those without, the demonic host, those in the world, and those inside of you. And me. They're, they're goners. Because Jesus is who he is. And being the messianic king means he's subduing all his enemies. Verse 13, quoting Psalm 110. All of his enemies are being, uh, uh, are, are being subdued. And will be finally and fully subdued when he returns in glory. Including the enemy within you and me, the old man, including um, uh, those who would seek to uh, conform us to their ways, who serve the devil, and the devil and his angels themselves who would just as soon see you destroyed as to breathe, or whatever they do. The second application of this, or implication of this, of Jesus' superiority to the angels and the fact that he is far above them and he's the ruler of all and the king of all, is that he is able to save you to the uttermost. You realize that if God wasn't sustaining you spiritually and me, we would all immediately fall away, apostatize. We'd just throw in the, throw in the towel and go... 
Let me join. Let me join the world out there. Live for myself. Eat, drink, and be merry. Build my, build my, build bigger barns. Stuff with stuff. Enjoy what's on the internet. You know. Climb over, over bodies up the ladder of success. You and I would all do that. Don't think you wouldn't. You would. I would. But he doesn't let that happen to his sheep. He has begun a good work in you, and he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus if you are his child. The devil can't stop him, can't undo that, and you can't undo that. And I can't undo that. Undo that. Even if I want to, I can't. If I'm his. Now there are people who think they're his who aren't actually his, and they apostat- those are the ones who apostatize. But you won't. If you're his, you can't. Now that, that doesn't mean, well, then I, I don't have to worry about persevering. That's not the way this works. Those whom he preserves, persevere. But he preser- you persevere because he preserves you. Jesus is your master, and he's going to get the job fully done. You're going to be before the throne, before him in glory one day. You need to think about that, by the way, when you do something really that horrifies you. You commit some sin. You do something that just, you go, I I can't believe I just, I can't believe I did that. The answer isn't to go, I'm lost, I'm going to hell. The answer is to flee to the cross. And remember that he's not done with you and he won't let go of you in spite of what you just did. You've got to repent. You've got to plead with him to resume his sanctifying work in you, which he will do because of who he is. And the final thing that I would say in terms of application of this doctrine is that because Jesus is who he is, God the Son, the, um, the one that the angels themselves worship, is that he will come to your aid. This is related to the previous point that I just made. He will come to your aid in your time of need. When you are sorely tempted to... Sin in some way, perhaps just in your own heart, to, um, to hate, uh, to, uh, to rely on your, um, your own human ingenuity or uh, strength to, to accomplish something rather than trust God to take care of something. Try to manipulate your environment in order to get something you want because you're not sure God can get the job done. You need to go stop self. Lord, help me, please. And he will. He will because he's this Savior whom the angels of heaven worship and who, were crea- uh, who created them. 
He is great beyond all comprehension. And He is yours. He has given Himself to you. Love Him this week and for the rest of your life with all your heart.